Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. Today on the show, do you wonder if your child who's autistic has pathological demand avoidance and you want to know what to do about it? Well, my next guest, Donna Henderson, and I talk about that and what you can do and how you can tell if your child has it. Well, sit back, relax, and grab your favorite beverage, and I'll see you on the other side. See you there. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. Today, I'm joined with Donna Henderson. Welcome to the show, Donna. Hi, thanks for having me, Reed. Not a problem. So why don't we start off with, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, thanks. I'm a licensed psychologist. I practice in Maryland in the greater Washington, D.C. area at a practice uh, called the Stixrude Group. And uh, my favorite thing to do, I see all kinds of, of people um, with all kinds of concerns, and I see kids, adolescents, and adults but my favorite thing to do is to work with autistic people who camouflage and have been missed and misunderstood throughout their lives. All right. So what do you mean by camouflage? You mean more along the lines of those who mask almost to the point where people think, oh, they're, they're the standard neurotypicals, but really they're just hiding in plain sight. It, well, exactly. I don't, I think you just answered your own question, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. It's autistic people who who blend into the non-autistic community pretty seamlessly, you know, on a superficial level, just on a behavioral level. But there's a huge cost to those people to, to mm -hmm. blend in in that way. And it, that cost comes out in terms of, you know, anxiety, exhaustion, neuro crash, burnout, you know, all of these kinds of things. Now, what age ranges do you deal with when you talk with your clients? Uh, what age ranges do I see? I see mm -hmm. anybody pretty much age seven and older. I don't work with little, little kids, but otherwise right. I, I like having a variety. You know, one day I might be on the floor playing with a seven-year-old and the next day I might be hanging out with a solid 16-year-old and the next day I might be working with a 45-year-old who's been misunderstood their whole lives. I like the variety. All right. Let's talk a little bit about what PDA is and how those out there who are autistic can tell if they have it or, or don't have it. Okay. Um, so PDA technically stands for pathological demand avoidance, which is an absolutely terrible name. It's terrible in part because of the word pathological. That's never helped anybody, that word, um, but also because it focuses on demand avoidance. And that's not the core of what PDA is. We all avoid demand sometimes, right? We can have demand avoidance for a million different reasons. Maybe we're anxious or depressed, or we're just tired, or the task is boring, or we're not motivated, or we don't understand how to do the activity, or we're distracted by something, or we have a headache, or there's sensory issues. Like there are literally countless reasons why people might avoid demands. And PDA is so much more than just avoiding demands. So let's start by renaming it. So I love um, Tomlin Wilding's reimagination of PDA as pervasive drive for autonomy. Okay. Because that's really what this is. These people are not avoiding demands. They're they're they have just this unbelievably strong drive for autonomy. And I really like um, a definition I heard from a clinician and mom of a PDA -er named Casey Ehrlich. And she says that PDA is a survival drive for autonomy that consistently overrides other survival instincts. So like sleep and eating and hygiene. So these people just have this unbelievably strong need for autonomy, like their very survival depends on it. All right. And there are core features. So do you want me to walk you through those core features? Sure, why not? <laughs> 
I mean, that's one of the questions I have. What are some of the traits of PDA? Ah, there you go. Okay, we're in sync today. Um, so there's, you know, the PDA Society in the UK. And I should say that PDA is widely known and understood and accepted in the UK, but not so much here in the States. Um, it's just starting to be become known a little bit more here in the States. Um, so there are the PDA Society in the UK has six um, core features. The first one is that the person resists and avoids the ordinary demands of life, even minor demands, even something like, you know, can you put a glass in the dishwasher? Can you do one math problem? Can you please take a shower? Just really, really minor demands, even demands that the person wants to meet. So even if the, the, the individual wants to do something, mm-hmm. if somebody else demands it of them, then they no longer are able to engage. And that's something that really separates PDAers from other people. So uh, it's, if it's a demand, they'll avoid it. But if it's asked upon them, they'll do it. It depends on the ask. If it's asked and they perceive that the other person is expecting them to, then they may not be able to comply. So if you say to a PDA or, you know, a kid who has PDA, um, would you please get dressed now because we have to leave the house in a very respectful tone that still implies a demand. So implied demands still can create this reaction in them. So even if I say, you know, I love you to a family member who has PDA, there's an implied expectation that they would say, I love you too. And Mm. that may be really hard for them. How would you go about approaching someone with PDA then to talk to them, to get them to do a said task or get a response back without them pulling back? It's extremely hard to do. You, You have to give them equality and respect both verbally and sort of in your nonverbal approach to them too. If you're an adult working with a child who has PDA, you sort of have to have this energy of like, I don't care whether or not you do this. Like, I I think this would be a, a good idea for us to do. This is one option for you. But if they get the sense that you really, really, really want them to do it, then they could have this reaction and go into this other like physiological state. And so it's, um, I'm, I'm happy to talk about approaches to PDA. I I think that would be important, but I'd also love to go through the other five core features if that's okay. That's fine. Let's go through the five. Okay. Um, I feel it would help those listening to be able to identify in themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so the second feature is using social strategies to regain autonomy. And so it looks like these people are being really manipulative and they get accused of being manipulative. And that's not common for autistic people. Autistic people are rarely accused of being manipulative, um, but PDAers are. I don't think it's manipulation. I call it strategic behavior. And so they do all kinds of things to be able to regain autonomy when somebody places a demand. They might distract you and say, you know, look over there or engage in some outrageous behavior. I worked with a PDA a few weeks ago, an eight-year-old who would just like randomly pull down her pants at times when demands were being placed, like just outrageous things like that. I mean, they might ignore you and just you know, not even acknowledge the demand. They might acknowledge the demand, but give excuses, like weird excuses, like, well, my mom said I can't, you know, my dad said I'm not allowed to do math or, you know, it's illegal to take a shower, you know, on Tuesdays, just really odd excuses. They might negotiate. Like I worked with one pda who would constantly do like, okay, I'll brush my teeth if you put the toothpaste on the toothbrush. And so that Mm. negotiation, that's an attempt to regain autonomy and some control over the situation. They might comply with the demand in their own way. So maybe they'll write a sentence on demand, but they'll spell every word wrong or they'll get dressed on demand or but all their clothes will be inside out, that kind of thing. They might physically incapacitate themselves. And when I see this in a kid, I definitely think of PDA. You know, my hands don't work. My feet don't work. I can't go. Oh, I can't walk over to my science class because my feet don't work anymore. I don't know where the kitchen is. 
that kind of thing. They just incapacitate themselves and they might withdraw into fantasy. And this is another hallmark for me. If I see this, I wonder about PDA. Oh, but I'm a teacher. Teachers don't have to do this work. Or becoming an animal or a baby is a really, really big one that I see. They'll like persistently be an animal or a baby who can't engage in that activity. And sometimes they just full on go into fight or flight. And so they might, you know, become very argumentative. They might have really, really aggressive behaviors. These are kids who get kicked out of preschools and elementary schools, or they might just elope and run away. Hmm, So that's sort of like wide variety of responses is, is the second core feature of PDA. Now, can anyone have it or is it more um, prevalent in those who are autistic? So, you know, we don't have very much research yet on PDA, but the people I know who are PDA experts all are convinced that this is a subtype of autism, that if you are a PDA or then you are autistic, but PDAers tend to have better superficial social skills than most autistic people. So on the surface, they don't sort of obviously have autism in that they tend to have non-autistic style eye contact and facial expressions and reciprocal conversations and that kind Mm -hmm. of thing on a superficial level to the point where they can be downright charming to non-autistic people. But underneath that, they do have difficulty with sort of um, social reciprocity. One of the hallmarks is um, having difficulty seeing the social hierarchy and understanding their place in it. So these are kids who don't know their kids. They talk to adults like they're one of the adults. Um, And they, you know, they don't seem to behave differently if they're talking to a peer or a teacher or a principal or a parent or your parents' friends. They just talk to them as if they're an adult. So they don't have that typical sense of of social hierarchy. And I want to be clear, it's not a rejection of authority. It's sort of blindness to authority. They just really don't know that they're kids. So that's actually the third core feature of PDA, that um, sort of having superficially typical social skills, but lacking depth. Mm. So the fourth core feature is um, excessive mood swings. And these are kids, you know, who have incredibly dysregulated meltdowns, often with volatile behavior that can be really, really sudden or extreme. They often get diagnosed with things like bipolar disorder or intermittent explosive disorder. And they can mask. I mean, they, they sometimes have this Jekyll and Hyde presentation where they're perfect at school. They camouflage like crazy at school and then they get home and it, it all falls apart. And we know that that's true of all autistic people, mm-hmm. right? They can have that presentation, but it's um, particularly true, I think, with PDAers. So two more, uh, two more core features. The mm-hmm. fifth one is um, obsessive behavior that is often focused on other people. And this can be from a love or a hate perspective. So they might like glob on or be really, really clingy with someone, or they might sort of have a vendetta against someone. So that obsession with other people tends to be really common. And then the last one, which is a core feature because it's common, but it's not present in 100% of PDAers, is this real comfort with role play and fantasy, sometimes to a really extreme extent, um, sometimes where the, the line between reality and their fantasy almost seems blurred. Sometimes they like to role play that they're adults. And it's, again, it's a way to maintain a sense of autonomy. So if if the family's eating dinner, they might be the waiter. And so they're managing how quickly everybody gets their food and in what order and that sort of thing. At school, they might stand in front of the class as if they're another teacher and be the teacher. I've had them, you know, sit in my chair in my office and say, I'm Dr. So-and-so. So they become the doctor and I'm the patient or, or just another doctor. Um, so that that delving into role play is is that last core feature. Now, if you have PDA, what can be done about it? Ah, so I think the most important thing is for all 
all of the adults, and I'm I'm thinking more of children here, um, and of course there are adult PDAers as well. But uh, I'm I'm thinking about children. The first thing is that all of the adults in the child's life have to be educated. They have to understand what PDAs and what what's going on here. Otherwise, they are going to label this kid as a bad kid. They're just going to act or, or believe and act like this child is engaging in volitional behavior, that the kid's just being a stinker. And that's not the case. And it's not going to help the child to think that way. So that's the first um, goal is to educate all of the adults. And of course, the, the PDA or themselves, because often there's a lot of frustration and shame if you're a PDA or you don't want to behave this way. You want to be able to comply with basic demands. You know, this is out of your control. So it's important that the PDA themselves understands it too. The next thing I would say is, oh, were you going to ask me something? No, go on. Okay. Yeah. It's okay to interrupt me. I, I get on a roll and <laughs> it's hard to stop. Um, to build relationships, mm. to treat them with respect. So when I'm working with a PDA or in, you know, at work, I would never introduce myself as Dr. Henderson. I always would just say, hey, I'm Donna, you know, so that we're on equal footing, that equality is important. I would never talk down to them, even sort of in an effort to be reassuring. Sometimes we talk to kids like, hi, I love your sweatshirt, like that kind of thing, but they can interpret that as us talking down to them. So just talk to them like you're talking to another adult with genuine respect, you know? Um, and then you have to really monitor your communication with them to limit demands as much as you possibly can um, and to detect subtle demands. So if I say, you know, so what's your plan for this afternoon? That could be perceived as me having a demand that you have a plan for this afternoon, mm -hmm. right? And so a lot of it has to do with the people around the PTA are learning how to change their language um, and lower demands, which is really, really hard to do. But when we don't, the PTA doesn't do well. And then it creates stress, not only for them, but for their whole family. And these are the families that are in more distress than anyone else I see. And I see a lot of families in distress for a lot of reasons, but my God, these families with PDAers, these parents are exhausted. They have tried everything, different parenting techniques, all kinds of behavior plans, medication, therapies, and things haven't worked. And so I think it just, wreaks havoc with marriages and causes sort of nonstop trauma on these families. Now, how would a parent go about getting their child tested to see if he has PDA or not? Yeah, so that's tricky. Um, so first of all, I should say PDA is not a formal diagnosis. So you can't technically be diagnosed with PDA. It's a subtype of autism. So in okay. my practice, Every person I have ever seen who I believe has PDA, I also believe meets the criteria for autism and the formal diagnosis is autism. And then I sort of just write with a PDA profile sort of next to it. Um, are most of your listeners here in the States or are they around the world? They're all over. All okay. over. Okay. So to some extent, it depends on where where you live, like I said, um, in the UK, and I think also in Australia, there's a there are a lot more clinicians who are familiar with PDA. Here in the States, you have to be careful about who you go to and make sure that the clinician you choose has familiarity with PDA. And I would recommend if people are wondering that they call PDA North America or go to the PDA North America website. Um, and I think they have some resources there to help people find uh, PDA familiar clinicians um, in their area. But there's no test for PDA, just like there's no test for autism. And anybody who says there's a test for autism or a gold standard test for autism is wrong. Um, it's really about history. It's about interviewing. It's about understanding a person's subjective experience, you know, just really getting to know that person's story, right? And so you want to find a provider who really focuses on, on that stuff, not gives any one particular test. There's no PDA test. So I'm guessing then 
on your website, you you mentioned a neuropsychological evaluation. Is that the kind of test you're talking about? So uh, a neuropsychological evaluation is done by a psychologist who has specialized training in the brain and brain behavior mm -hmm. relationships. So, uh, you know, I'm a neuropsychologist and we typically look at things like what's the person's IQ? How's their language? How's their memory? How's their attention and executive functioning? And those things can all be really, really helpful to develop recommendations, like maybe this person needs accommodations at work or in school. But it's not necessary to know those things in order to diagnose either autism or to identify PDA. So a neuropsych eval isn't necessarily necessary. But what is necessary is somebody who is going to take a good big picture, holistic look at a person and under, try to understand, you know, every aspect of their lives and their behavioral functioning and their social emotional functioning to, you know, to, to help understand them. So like, for instance, if I get a PDA referral or an autism referral, I often do a full neuropsych eval, but not always. It's not always necessary. If they're doing really? like really, really well at home or, or at work or at school, it may not be necessary to do all that, that other testing. Now, when you have a PDA or in the workforce, are they able to keep a job or is do they have a hard time because of what's going on with them? Yeah, I mean, it It just depends. I have known PDAers that um, have persistent uh, persistent inability to go to school. We, we usually call that school refusal, but I hate that term because they're not just refusing to go to school to be stinkers. They're unable to go to school for some reason. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of PDAers also have difficulty launching from childhood into adulthood and becoming independent. But not all of them. I've absolutely known adult PDAers who have found their way in this world. Some of them um, are are um, entrepreneurs, own their own businesses, so they don't have to report to anybody else. Um, and some of them are in healthcare and are helping um, younger autistic people. Uh, so it's it's widely variable. Now, changing subjects for a minute. Why do you think so many people with ADHD have a hard time keeping a job? With ADHD? Yeah. Or autism? ADHD? Well, both, I guess. Both? Um, so I want to be clear, a, a lot of people who have ADHD, and, and I'm one of them, or, or autism, don't have a hard time keeping a job too, right? It can be right. either. And, I, and I, I guess one of the reasons I say that is there's some statistic out there that I, I've heard about for years that something like 97% of autistic people are unemployed. But I don't for a minute believe that. I think there are a lot of autistic people who aren't diagnosed, who yeah. are very well employed, mm -hmm. and they're just not part of the, the research. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, if you have difficulty with attention and executive functioning and you're not getting proper supports, it can certainly be hard to get a job and it can certainly be hard to keep a job, right? Mm -hmm. And then with, and that's with either autism or ADHD. And then with autism, if you have difficulty with communication in that you communicate differently from most people, it may be hard for you to get along at work, right? You might misunderstand expectations or communication, or you might communicate in a way that's different for most people, and it can make it hard to, to stay at work. And I think, you know, <laughs> there are probably a million other reasons. Like I've known so many autistics who just have difficulty with the sensory environments at work um, and just going into work every day, just dealing with whatever it is, the lighting, the noise, the temperature, the social demands, of course, all of it can just be too much. And then they go into, um, I like the term neuro crash, which is just when, you know, your environment's expectations and the demands of your life exceed your ability to cope. And you just get to a point where you're like, I'm done and I can't anymore. And literally might become unable to speak, unable to eat, 
Um, and then if that lasts for a long time, that's essentially autistic burnout. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of autistic people who struggle with burnout. So they might do really well at work for a while, but then the it takes its toll and it's cumulative. And then they go into burnout and are sort of unable to get out of bed for a month. And, and when they're in that state, it looks like they're depressed to the outside eye. And everybody says, oh, they're depressed. Give them antidepressants and therapy. And they might be depressed, but they might have autistic burnout, in which case they don't need medication or therapy necessarily. They need to recover. They need to recuperate, right? And of course, they can have burnout and depression simultaneously as well. So it's important to sort of sort through that. Now, is there a difference between a burnout and a meltdown? Yes. So a meltdown, I think of as something that's sort of acute in a particular situation where your emotions become just too intense for you to bear. And so there's going to have, there's going to be some behavioral consequence to that, right? Um, And it might be externalized, you know, yelling, crying, physical aggression, whatever, or it might just be internalized where you're melting down internally. Uh, Maybe you become mute, unable to speak, or maybe you're just, you know, (laughs) freaking out on the inside, even though nobody can tell on the outside, right? But it's, Mm -hmm. it's in a particular situation, whereas burnout is something that's longer. It's your nervous system truly needing a long period of recovery. You don't go into burnout in a day. You don't get out of it in a day. It's a more long-term situation. Right. Now, you mentioned you had kids. Do Mm -hmm. they have disabilities as well? So I don't know if they would consider themselves to have disabilities, but I have three kids. Um, One of them is autistic. One of them has ADHD and one of them has a whole lot of diagnoses, including both autism and ADHD. So we are, we are quite the neurodiverse family. (laughs) How do you juggle that with your own work and just keep yourself focused? Wow, that is a great question. I'm not sure that I do that successfully. <laughs> As an ADHD or myself, I, I just find it unbelievably stressful to keep switching. Like, uh, you know, now I'm helping one of my kids, and now five minutes later, I'm, you know, interviewing a, a child you know, for my job. And then five minutes later, I'm doing a podcast interview. And then the next hour I'm working on my book, like, and that switching back and forth is hard for somebody who has ADHD or autism. Like we all have those difficulties switching and, and I find it really hard. I think what makes it easier for mm-hmm. me, I have an incredibly supportive husband and he has great executive functioning. And so I offload a lot of that to him. And I think that's a really important point because people seem to think that the goal is independence, like their goal for their child is for their child to be independent or their goal for themselves. I want to be independent. But um, I learned this from a really cool autistic researcher named Dina Gassner. The goal is not independence. It's interdependence. We all depend on each other for a million different reasons, right? And that's good and healthy and wonderful and beautiful. And so this is just one example. Like I absolutely depend on my husband for a whole lot of executive functioning support. And at work, I have um, an amazing, a a few people who help me with all kinds of executive functioning. Um, And so that makes it all workable. And, And I think the other thing that makes it workable is that I have a lot of passion and a sense of purpose. And we all need a sense of purpose and a sense of like, why am I doing what I'm, what I'm doing? Right. And that's especially important when we're doing something Mm -hmm. that's boring or challenging a sense of like, but this is important and here's why it's important. Right. And, And I'm lucky that I feel this sense of like missionary zeal about my work. Mm -hmm. And so when it gets hard, that makes it easier for me. That is interesting that you said that because a lot of people I've talked to about their, who have kids who are autistic. I mean, it seems the goal for them is independence for your child, for their child. But in reality, like you said, it's not inter, it's not independence, it's interdependence. Yeah. And that means different things to different people. I mean, I, I would say, you know, I do have the hope 
and frankly, the expectation that my children will achieve financial independence. Um, and I think that's reasonable for them. And that's not a, a realistic expectation for everybody. You know, I think you have to sort of know your, your own family and your own kids, spouse, et cetera. But we all continue to depend on each other in a million different ways. And I think that's okay. Now, why do you feel so many people are being misdiagnosed? Oh, my goodness. So for me, what I see most of all is autistic people who are missed entirely or who are misdiagnosed with something else. And some of that is because the general population really doesn't understand what autism is. They mm -hmm. still think of Rain Man. You know, they still think of somebody who needs 24 hours a day care, who never, ever, you know, engages in reciprocal conversation or makes eye contact and maybe is overtly odd. And some of it is the tools that clinicians use to diagnose. Our tests aren't very great, very good at all. Um, but a lot of it is problems with clinicians, my field, mm -hmm. and not just psychologists, but all kinds of clinicians who should be considering autism. We make a lot of mistakes. Um, one mistake is diagnostic overshadowing. So somebody gets a diagnosis and then we attribute everything to that diagnosis. So for instance, somebody gets a diagnosis of social anxiety. And then for years, everybody blames every little thing about that person on their social anxiety. So maybe they never ever make a friend or they never are able to keep friends or they take to their room and can't engage in any activities. If everybody keeps saying, well, that's just their social anxiety, that's diagnostic overshadowing. That's hmm. We're blaming too much on that, on anxiety or ADHD or whatever. Another mistake that I think clinicians make is relying too much on tests rather than interviewing. And there's this idea that there are some magical tests that can tell if someone's autistic. That is absolutely not the case. No. And there is one test in particular that is referred to as the gold standard, which is absolutely absurd. And there is research showing that that test is, can be helpful. I have nothing against the test I'm talking about. I'm trained in it and use it occasionally, but it is not the gold standard for every autistic person. And it particularly misses people who have average to above average intellectual functioning. It particularly misses um, people who are assigned female at birth. And so we have to be really careful about relying too much on tests. Um, I think another mistake that clinicians make that results in missed or misdiagnoses is they code certain behaviors as non-autistic. So if a client has a good sense of humor, clinicians think, oh, they can't be autistic. They have a good sense of humor. Or if a mm -hmm. client you know, makes typical eye contact, or if a client is happily married or has friends or wants friends, like these are all behaviors that you can absolutely see in autistic people. But so many clinicians think, well, they can't be autistic if they do that, which is completely absurd. Mm -hmm. um, and then another big one is assuming that they'd be diagnosed already. So like once a kid hits, you know, 10, 12, 15 or so, and then on through adulthood, there are way too many clinicians, even if they think of autism, they think, oh, but somebody else would have diagnosed them by now. So it can't be autism. But we know there's so much research that there's an entire lost generation of autistic adults out there. Mm -hmm. And they, they have just been missed their whole lives. So clinicians can't assume they would have been missed already. I could go on and on and on, but I think you get the idea. Like the yeah. problem mostly is with us, the clinicians. And that's where I have my my missionary zeal to teach other clinicians how to get better at this. I think part of the problem too is, I mean, that the clinicians look at those when they're testing and they, and they attribute autism with a good percentage of them are introverts. And mm. when they see somebody who's an extrovert, who's chatty, who's who loves to go out and do things, they go, oh, you can't be autistic. It's got to be something else. And they probably brush their results off and just say, it's something else. 
I think that's such a great point, Reed. I've seen that over and over and over again, because there are plenty of autistic people who are extroverted, who are really friendly, who want to be around people, you know, and all of that sort of thing. And you're exactly right. That doesn't mean they're not autistic, but that fools clinicians. And temperament, temperament is another thing that fools clinicians. Mm -hmm. If a kid is just really, really, really sweet um, and sort of compliance goes along with that, because a lot of clinicians think, well, autistic people are rigid and have behavioral problems. And this kid is super sweet. That doesn't make any sense at all. No, I mean, we, I mean, I don't speak for everyone, but I know for me, when I was tested and when I applied for SSI, they just looked at me and they just said, he can do manual labor, but they don't put in the fact that because of my tendency to talk a lot, it can ca it cause problems. Mm -hmm. So SSI just brushes it off and says, he can work, he can work. I literally had to hire a disability lawyer to say, hey, any, any one of these jobs you're pointing out from the vocational um, woman who works for the vocational center, my mom would sit there and say, nope, he works with people, works with people, works with people. He has no idea of that what's right or wrong to say at the right time. And and with me, it's cost me jobs. It's cost me friendships. And they don't and they don't see that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can absolutely see what how that would be the case. And I've seen it myself, you know, over and over and over again in my clients for sure. No. I think it's especially hard if somebody has you know, relatively high intellectual functioning. Mm -hmm. And somebody just says, well, you know, your IQ is 110, you should be fine. But adaptive functioning is very different from intellectual functioning. And there are so many things that can get in the way of adaptive functioning. And like you're pointing out some of the social stuff. And also, I would say sensory stuff can really, really, really get in the way. Yeah, I mean, now, why do you think so many of us with ASD are being misdiagnosed completely? Well, I think, you know, some of the things I already talked about, you know, with the the problems with clinicians and clinicians not understanding autism, and then they diagnose something else instead. You know, I see it all the time. I see it regularly. I'll give you one example of, you know, this isn't the most common example. I would say the most common misdiagnoses are... Um, anxiety and and the autistic person might have anxiety, but the clinician doesn't wonder. Well, why are they anxious? What's underneath that? And so they miss the autism. Same with ADHD. The autistic person might truly also have ADHD, but then everything gets attributed to the ADHD, and the autism gets missed. But sometimes there are other diagnoses that get diagnosed that are not appropriate. Mm. Oppositional defiant disorder is one, in my opinion. It's something I personally never diagnose because it's basically a list of bad behaviors. It doesn't tell you anything about the person's brain functioning. It doesn't tell you anything about their nervous system. It's just basically saying this kid is, <laughs> is a bad kid. They behave badly. And it's very judgmental. And particularly if it's a black male who gets that diagnosis, it can really hurt them down the line. Mm -hmm. It affects how other people see that person. Um, so whenever I see a kid who's diagnosed with ODD, I wonder, huh, I wonder if there's some autism and they do engage in some maladaptive behaviors, but there's a reason for it. Like maybe they're in sensory overwhelm mm -hmm. or they need different communication style or, or whatever the reason is. Another one I occasionally see is bipolar disorder um, in adults because some adults who are autistic can go through periods of time when they're intensely involved in an activity and they can go for days just like talking a lot about it and sleeping less and being really into it. And then they might go into the sort of neuro crash or burnout after that. And that can make them look bipolar. And you have to be careful because mm -hmm. somebody can be autistic and bipolar. Mm -hmm. But I have seen a number of people who are just diagnosed bipolar and not autistic. Um, and so I think that's that's really an important thing to be aware of. 
Now, you had mentioned that a lot of autistic people out there have been missed because they just blend in by masking. Why do you think they want to blend in and not stick out? So I don't know if they necessarily want to blend in because masking isn't necessarily conscious, right? I mean, sometimes it is. Sometimes people mm. are consciously thinking, I better not stim right now because it would look funny in front of my coworkers, or I better think of something to say because it's my turn to talk in this conversation, or I'm making myself make eye contact because I know I have to. But a lot of times it's not conscious, especially with kids. They sort of get the idea that they're supposed to behave a certain way and then they they force themselves to do so. Um, and so people don't necessarily know whether or not they're masking. But, I mean, we are sort of a, a, a social society in a sense. I mean, we, we don't live in isolation from each other. Kids go to school. They live in family units. We generally work with other people. And mm -hmm. so we learn really, really early on you got to sort of play by the rules if you want that to go well. And when you don't play by the rules, and most of these rules are not overtly stated, they're implicit, so that makes it hard. But when you don't play by the rules, things don't go well for you, right? So it's not that people necessarily want a mask, they just are trying to get by in this world and masking enables them to do that. And and I should say masking or, or camouflaging, I've been, I've been trying to only say camouflaging lately since COVID because a few of my autistic clients got confused when I re referenced masking. They thought I meant like a literal mask on their <laughs> face for COVID. So I've been trying to just say camouflaging. So sometimes people think of camouflaging as good or bad. I don't think of it as either good or bad. I yeah. think of it as useful, but also potentially problematic, right? Like we all camouflage sometimes. <laughs> Right. And that can be super, super useful. If I'm in like a really, really irritable mood, like I was in a really irritable mood last night, I let it show because, you know, I was just around my family and they can take it. But if I did that at work, that would be not, not very functional, not very helpful or respectful to my coworkers. And so it's an, an example of how we all camouflage sometimes and it's useful. But if you have to camouflage all the time, that's it's exhausting. Draining. It's so draining, right? You know far better yeah. than I do. Yeah. I've talked with many people and they say, and their families have told me, their kids would come home from school immediately, go into their rooms for 45 minutes and not come out. And even the, their husbands who were um, autistic would do the same thing and not want to talk to anyone. Right. And, and, I, and I've never met because I never knew I was autistic. I was unofficially diagnosed in my 20s, officially diagnosed in my 50s. Mm. But to me, masking is draining. Why do you want to come home and not spend time with your family and, and, and go to your room and drink and veg out when you could be more sociable? I think the world needs to be more accepting of us and then we can eliminate the fact that we have to math. I I agree and I want to I want to clarify something for your non-autistic listeners because I think your non-autistic listeners may have heard what you just said and thought, well, when I get home from work, I I want to relax too. And so as a non-autistic woman, I would say when I get home from work, yeah, I want to be left alone, but like for 10 minutes, I don't need a lot of time. I just give me 10 minutes to change my clothes and regroup and transition into the home. But a lot of autistic people, they need, like you said, 45 minutes. They might need two or three hours. They might need the rest of the day to recover. I recently talked to a, a college professor who, you know, can quote, pass as, as non-autistic really, really well. And he said, yeah, I can go to the department party. I can blend in with everybody. Nobody will ever think there's anything different about me. But what they don't know is if I do that for an hour and a half, I'm basically non-functional for the next two days. It takes me days to recover from that. And nobody sees that part. I mean, my parents see that a lot now, or I shouldn't say my parent, because I lost my father in, 20, in 2017 is that 
And I've seen it in myself now when we've gone to family parties and they're, my sister-in-law's got a huge family. All of a sudden, I will find the quietest place in the house. And I'll go there and I'll stay there for almost the remainder of the party just to let my mind and my body quiet down because I can't take all the talking. I can't take the smells. I can't. I need a place for my mind to quiet down. Yeah. And nor should you have to take all the talking and all the smells and all the sounds. Like there is some belief in our culture that somehow that's wrong. And if only we could get you to be able to stay at the party for longer, that would somehow be better, which makes no sense at all. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, the funniest story was my nephew had his graduation party at my brother's house, a lot of loud music. And all of a sudden I just said, I'm going home. And yeah. we live like two doors down. I go home and I go lay down and my parents come home and they're like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. I just needed to quiet down. It was just too much. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's sort of, for me, the goal for our, our younger autistic people to be able to learn that about themselves. Like that's the first step for self-advocacy, right? Self-knowledge, knowing, mm -hmm. yep, I, I get overwhelmed by this sort of thing. And then to be able to say it in a calm and respectful way to everybody, like, I'm fine, but I cannot stay in this environment. I need to leave to take care of myself, right? That's okay. that's a huge goal. And so it's incumbent upon us, the non-autistic people, to understand that and to be able to be flexible. Can, can I give you a good example of that? Sure. Okay. So in my family um, at the dinner table, we have um, on the one side of the table is me and my ADHD daughter, not two, two non-autistic people. On the other side of the table, we have my two autistic children and all my kids are young adults. And uh, my, my husband sits at the head of the table. And so one day my ADHD daughter was telling a story, which which was not a very interesting story, I will admit. <laughs> but still, <laughs> my non-autistic kids were looking down at their plates. They weren't making any eye contact. And the story was going on and I was getting more annoyed at them because they weren't even glancing at her. And so finally I said something, and this might shock your viewers, but this is how we talk in our house and it's not for everybody, but it works for us. I said, hey, autistic people, how about a little eye contact over here for the non-autistic people, right? And we all laughed. And then they put me in my place, rightfully so, and said, why should we have to make eye contact just because you want eye contact? Like we have to make eye contact out there in the world all day long. We shouldn't have to do it in our own home. Yeah. And they were right, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So it's I mean, like a million little things like that, right? That reminds me of a story one of my guests was telling me. He he and his wife are um, friendship and dating coaches. And before the, he started their business, he was giving a lecture to a bunch of autistic people at the JCC. And he noticed as he was giving this lecture, everyone had their eyes down at their phone. And at the end of the lecture, he goes to the woman that ran it for him. And he's like, she's like, how was he? He's like, it was a bomb. No one, no one was looking at me. He's like, nope, you're wrong. They don't, they, you were a success. They, they heard everything you said. Yep. You don't need eye contact to pay attention. Right. We can multifunction. That's right. basically what we can do. Yeah, no, it's true. And I mean, what I've heard from a lot of autistic people is I can actually pay attention better if I'm not making eye contact, right? I had to yeah. advocate for my daughter when she was younger. Teachers used to get mad at her because she wouldn't look up. She would like look at her paper while they were lecturing. But meanwhile, she had straight A's. Like, so what? Leave her alone. So she's not making eye contact. She's fine. I mean, that's one of the biggest things is the fact that our school systems aren't equipped to deal with us. Yes. I've talked with people all over the U.S., all over the world, and Canada is better at it than we are. England, Australia is 10 times better. They have a autism, a, um, autism minister. That oh, heads wow. up the whole autism thing out there. Wow. We are so far behind in with our school systems. 
that teachers do not know how to handle either autism or ADHD in their classrooms, and they're not taught. Yeah, I agree. They're not taught. And I mean, every teacher I know is well-intentioned and way, way, way overworked with way too many kids in their classrooms. You know, Um, every teacher I know when they do get a chance to learn something new, to advocate or support a student, they do it. It's just, gosh, what a hard job they have in our country. Yeah, I I, I agree. My sister-in-law's cousin told me she used to work at a school and she had one child that would just run around and just had so much energy, could sit still. And the teacher that was in there was just was frustrated and she would scream and yell at these kids. Mm. In my mind, I'm thinking, there's nothing wrong with her. She's got ADHD. Yeah, She just can't sit still. She needs something to hold her focus. Right. And I think we all have to get a lot more flexible. I mean, I worked with a teacher recently who was like really worked up because a child kept playing with like she had a few barrettes that she kept playing with persistently. But like, so what? I don't know why it bothered. Exactly. And I'm not sure it wasn't didn't seem to be bothering any other students. And, you know, we, we do have to ask ourselves, is this behavior really, truly a problem? And if the answer is no, then move on. If the answer is yes, then we have to ask ourselves, but what purpose is that behavior serving for that child? And we have to help the child meet that need in a different way, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you think about it. The problem is if you got a child with ADHD in your class and they lose attention, it's because you're not doing your job well enough to get their attention by stimulating their mind because we... Someone with ADHD gets bored really quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's complicated. That is for sure. And I think one thing that bothers me about our current system, and there's no easy answer, is that we teach children to ignore their bodies and, and what their bodies are telling them, you know? And so like, nope, this is not the time we go to the bathroom. You have to hold it till it's time to, you know, go to the bathroom and nope, this is not the time we eat. <laughs> you have to wait until it's time to eat. And nope, you're not supposed to move around right now, even though your body is telling you to move around right now, we're supposed to sit still for some reason. Right. And so we're teaching kids, ignore your body, ignore your body's needs. And that becomes a real problem later on. I know I know with me, I've taught myself because of my autism to listen to my body. And that's how I'm able to know to prevent a meltdown, to prevent a burnout. If I start feeling agitated or tired, I know it's time to step away from what I'm doing. Otherwise, I'll have what I call mini meltdowns where I just scream and yell and hit myself to the point of why am I doing this? I'm tired. Yeah. I need to shut things down and step away. I I love hearing that. And I wonder if you can figure out and explain how you learn to listen to your body. Cause it's so hard for so many kids. I know I have a friend who's autistic and he's on antipsychotics and I'm trying to tell him you, they're not, they're changing who you are. If you listen to your body and you know your signs, if you're tired and you're cranky, step back, put your electronics down, mm-hmm. find a quiet place and let your mind at ease. Yeah. Well, good advice for everyone. I would say it, it makes me think of interoception. Have you come across that word? No. Oh, it's a great word. So um, most people, when they think of our sensory systems, they think of five, five sensory systems, right? Seeing, touch, hearing, yeah, yeah, touch, go ahead. smell, hearing, yeah. taste, touch, smell, hearing, taste, seeing, feeling, I guess, seeing, seeing, vision, vision, yeah, vision, yeah. So there's actually eight sensory systems. Everybody forgets about the other three all the time or or never learned about them. And they're super important, particularly for what we're talking about right now. So two of the other three have to do with your body and knowing where your body is in space and what your body is doing. 
and that's called vestibular and proprioception. Um, and we can come back to those later if you want, but the eighth one is interoception. And that has to do with your ability to sense and understand what's happening inside your body, not out there in the world. And so when you, when your heart rate escalates and your stomach clenches, that tells you maybe that you might be anxious, right? That's how we feel our emotions. Mm. So interoception helps us understand our affective emotions like anxiety, anger, joy, jealousy, all of that stuff. But it also helps us understand our homeostatic emotions like hunger and pain and having mm. to pee or being fatigued, right? And so a lot of autistic people and some non-autistic people can have altered interoceptive awareness. And so the signals they get from their body might be too much or might be too little. Mm. So some autistic kids, for instance, don't get hunger signals. They just don't eat because they never seem to feel hungry. And then they get oh. diagnosed with an eating disorder, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like ARFID or whatever. Some oh. autistic people don't know when they're feeling anxious or angry until it's really, really extreme and it's too late mm. to do anything about it. Yeah, right? I mean, I get that. I get tribal anxiety and or anxiety of going to things that I'm not prepared for, like... I recently went to a conference for podcasting and up until that point I got on the plane, I was so anxious and so nervous. My mind, my mind, my body, I just kept saying, I want to cancel. I want to cancel. And to the point I got into the plane, everything just disappeared. Mm. Now I am going to, I had to get, I have to get three teeth pulled. Mm. I was so nervous and my mom kept telling me, you're not going to get them pulled right away. You need an evaluation first. I didn't even listen to it and I ignored her and I get there and the woman behind the desk tells me, they're not going to pull your teeth right now. You need an evaluation first. Mm -hmm. yeah. And all my anxiousness, all my stress just disappeared. I mean, I went, I would, it's like, a good example of this is when I was in college, I had to write a dissertation and I had to give a uh, report in front of my class. Mm -hmm. I was so nervous. My hands went clammy. Mm -hmm. I felt cold. Mm -hmm. And the minute I gave it and then when it was over, that feeling just went away. Yeah. And so that tells me two things about you. One is that you have anticipatory anxiety. Mm -hmm. And then once you sort of get there, you, you tend to do better, right? Yeah. And that's true for a lot of people. But the other is that you seem to have really strong interoceptive awareness. You're just aware of what's going on with your body. You said like my hands get clammy and I feel cold and, and that you know what that means for you, right? Yeah. And that's just a huge, huge, huge strength that maybe you didn't have when you were younger and you had to no. do some work to get to this point, you know, but we can't expect kids to manage their emotions if they don't know what they're feeling. And to know what you're feeling, you have to know what your body is doing. Yeah, I mean, that's so true. I mean, younger kids, I don't think they can grasp that yet. But I think as they get older, mm -hmm. they can start to learn to listen to their bodies, know what they're bodies are feeling and say to themselves my body's feeling this maybe i'm hungry my body's feeling this maybe i'm scared mm -hmm. excellent advice i agree i agree now finally what do you think about the word neurodistinct over neurodivergent oh um i can't say i've heard that one before Neurodistinct, neurodivergent. I guess my initial impression is it's kind of cool because divergent means you are diverging from some theoretical norm um, and distinct just means unique. So 
yeah, my my initial impression is that's kind of cool. Can I can I steal that from you? Did you make that up or no, did you get it from um, somewhere? There was a man I interviewed by the name of Tim Goldstein who would coin that word. And everyone that I've brought that up to seems to love that word over neurodivergent. Yeah, I'm, I, I am a slow processor, so I'm going to have to think about it for a while, but I think it's kind of cool. I, I just finished writing two books. They're both literally at the printer right now, and I'm, I'm kind of having a moment of regret that I didn't use that word in the books, but okay. <laughs> that brings me to a question, though. How was writing a book for someone who's got ADHD? Because <laughs> I'm um, writing a book. I'm trying to write a book about my life, and it's hard. It's so hard, isn't it? It's way harder than I thought it would be. I mean, way harder than I thought it would be. I was like, like a lot of ADHDers, I didn't really think ahead and have a strong plan. I just was like, hey, I think I'll write a book. <laughs> and uh, thank God for my husband, um, because definitely his support got me through it. And, and I highly recommend this. Um, do you know about the concept of body doubling? I've heard about it through, um, she's a YouTuber who does, got a web, who's got a YouTube page called um, How to ADHD. And oh, she's, talked, she's adorable. Yeah, she's yeah, awesome. She's, sweet. she's talked about body doubling where you have like a second person just like to be there with you as you do something to help you out. Yes, exactly. And the other person doesn't even have to be necessarily interacting with you. It's just the presence of another person. I really, really benefit from body doubling. In fact, I sometimes get my kids, you know, when they're home from college, like, hey, you want to sit in my office and do your work while I do my work? It might help you. I pretend I'm helping them, but really <laughs> it helps me. So I knew from the get-go that I needed a co-author. I knew there was no chance I would get through this alone. And I went through about six months of just sort of looking at people in my life, wondering like, are you my co-author? Are you my co-author? Kind of like that old, do you remember that P.D. Eastman children's book? Are you my mother? Yeah, I so, think so. Are you my mother? Are you my mother? And and one day I sort of recognized um, my co-author, um, just a, a long-term friend and colleague of mine named uh, Sarah Wayland, who's amazing. And so Sarah and I, basically body doubled every Friday for the past three years, all day long, and some weekends as well. And that's how we wrote the books. Yeah, I mean, with me, it's more um, about my mind's like autocorrecting everything I write. Mm. And I have a good friend who says, well, maybe first of all, you should turn off autocorrection in, yeah. in, in Word. Because that's a distraction. That's great advice. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. And still, my mind still, I still autocorrect, like small, not as much as I did when it was on, but small words of so often, I will autocorrect. Yeah. Well, and if that's getting in your way, then yeah, that's something that will we'll need to to change for you to, to move forward. I mean... For what it's worth, I just tell myself I'm going to write a crappy draft to start. Like my first draft of every chapter, I just say I'm just going to write a crappy draft because I just need to put something on paper yeah. and and just dump it all. And it's usually a, a disorganized mess. And then I go back and and massage it and clean it up and change it. You know that everybody has to find their own process, of course. That's what my writing teacher had said to me in, uh, and to all of us. She's like, you need to remember your first draft is always going to be a mess. There's no need to edit it. Yep. Every author that's written a book, his first draft is a mess. Yep. If someone tells you they got their book out quick, they're wrong. Oh, completely agree. Yeah. The greatest, she's like, the greatest authors are ones that didn't put their books out for years because it took them that long to get it done. Yeah. Sarah and I had a phrase for it. We called it thrashing around. Like I'd be working on a chapter. She'd be working on a chapter. And like, I would just, she would say, how's it going? I'd say, oh, I'm just thrashing around. Meaning like I have all these different thoughts and I'm throwing them on the paper, but they're disorganized and I have too many details and not enough details. And it's just a God awful mess. I'm thrashing around. And that's sort of the first phase of, of writing a chapter for me at mm -hmm. least. Yeah. And finally, where can people find out more about you and what services you offer? 
Um, so I have a website, which is my name with DR in front of it, drdonnahenderson.com. And just, and no no period or dot in the middle, just drdonnahenderson.com. And I have my two books that I just mentioned that are available for pre-order now. The first one is called, Is This Autism? A Guide for Clinicians and Everyone Else. And it's really meant for you know, not just clinicians, but educators and um, parents of autistics and people who think they might be autistic, people who are married to autistics, just anybody um, to explain what is autism. And, and we use the diagnostic criteria as our guide and explain how to understand autism through the diagnostic criteria. But we also have a really cool chapter on autistic strengths, which I'm very, very excited about. And um, we have quotes from over 100 autistic people throughout the book, which is just really important to me because neither Sarah nor myself are um, autistic ourselves. The second book is called, Is This Autism a Companion Guide for Diagnosing? That one is just for clinicians about how, so you have somebody in your office and you think they may be autistic or they think they may be autistic. How do you figure it out with them and how do you move through it? You know, ending with how to discuss it with that person in their family and, and what recommendations might be useful. And that's it, ladies and gentlemen, that was Dr. Donna, Donna Henderson, and I'll see you in the next one. And I'll leave links in the description down below. See you later. I want to believe in the truth, but only see what I'm shown. Got the freedom to choose, but can't decide on my own. Follow what the group is thinking. Bottle up my intuition till it's popping out the box that I don't fit in. I want to believe in the truth, but only see what I'm shown. Got the freedom to choose, but can't decide on my own. Follow what the group is thinking. Bottle up my intuition till it's popping out the box that I don't fit in. Shape shifting, same player, different position. The definition could stick with them. Drifting through these layers of wisdom. I took a break from tradition. I move away from what's expected. Change the music, ride the way, but keep the message. Question this dimension, there's still deception. Every entrance have good intentions, no exceptions, and leave the rest up to the heavens. Your only plan to be the secret and become yourself. Cause more than half would you believe in was crafted to be misleading for the benefit of someone else. I wanna believe in the truth, but only see what I'm shown. Got the freedom to choose, but can't decide on my own. Follow what the group is thinking, bottle up my intuition till it's popping out the box that I don't fit in. I wanna believe in the truth, but only see what I'm shown. Got the freedom to choose, but can't decide on my own. Follow what the group is thinking, bottle up my intuition till it's Popping up the box that I don't, I don't fit in. Hey, hey, yeah, I don't fit in. Applause. I don't walk around in the traps While you closing in the walls I be using out the cracks So don't relax, don't breathe These are the facts Supposedly stutters Live in a mask Suckers Keep moving along to the beat Brainwash, rinse and repeat Keep pulling about with the sheep I'll go, bottom with Eve Know what I mean? Probably not Honesty shocks It's fineness The only box I'll ever fit in Is the one that I die I wanna believe in the truth But only see what I'm shown Got the freedom to choose But can't decide on my own Follow what the group is thinking Bottle up my intuition Till it's popping out the box that I don't fit in. I wanna believe in the truth, but only see what I'm shown. Got the freedom to choose, but can't decide on my own. Follow what the group is thinking, bottle up my intuition. Till it's popping out the box that I don't fit in. Hey, hey, yeah, I don't fit in.